Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me fantasy author Tim Akers. Tim, um, thanks for being on today. Um, some of your books include uh, Nightwatch, which came out last year, I believe, if I, if I looked up that up right, um, and the series The Burn Cycle, The Hall of War, and you have a book coming up in April uh, called Wraithbound, which is going to be book one in the Spiritbinder saga. So um, I, I've started on the, the Hallowed War and recommend anybody who is a lover of, of epic fantasy to pick it up. It starts with the, the Big Night, and it's fantastic. Um, you told me when we met that um, was a, a British reviewer or, set, or something like that says the most British book he's ever read. Is that? Yeah, yeah, it was an English reviewer, and he, he said it was the most British book he's ever read. And I'm I'm from North Carolina. Now I'm from the Scottish part of North Carolina originally, but as you can tell by the the plaid in the background here, the plaid pillow, right. <clears throat> that is the official tartan of my hometown. Uh, oh really that's fantastic north carolina here so tim go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself sure so uh my name is tim Akers. i write primarily um epic fantasy but also night watch uh night watch series which is sort of portal urban fantasy uh, a lighter more humorous stuff uh one reviewer called it a mix terry pratchett and jem butcher oh nice uh, so um you know there's, there's not a lot to, to know about me i've been writing since i was a child and um fantasy is important to me uh epic fantasy is, has been you know my lifeblood for for a very long time um i, I don't know what else you want to know I, I grew up in north carolina i live in chicago uh i love blizzards and traffic and stuff that's kind of why i'm here um so yeah I don't know if that's true but <laughs> I might be speaking facetiously. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my, my two favorite sports teams are Chicago Cubs and Chicago Bears, but I've never been to, to Chicago. I'd like to go out one day and maybe catch a game or two. But um, If you come I out, I live uh, outside Chicago. There's a uh, The reason that I'm actually here is a little college called Wheaton College, which has a place called the Wade Center attached to it, um, which has a bunch of Tolkien's original paperwork um it has the they have the desk where tolkien wrote the hobbit um they have the wardrobe that was c.s lewis's childhood wardrobe it was the influence for uh the lion with the witch in the wardrobe so it's it's a great place it's a good good location to get inspired by fantasy and stuff oh yeah that's fantastic that's kind of cool that you have access to that stuff to, uh, I, I don't know if i mean it's, it's inspiration to see like your hero's stuff, like whether that's, you know, even a pen that they use or, or whatever, but you have the opportunity to, to see that stuff. It's kind of interesting. Um, what originally got you, you said fantasy is like your life, but like what originally got you into fantasy? Um, well, so I grew up in a, a very small um, conservative Christian home uh, and um, it was in the middle of the satanic panic and so the fact that I was a big fan of, of fantasy was something that my parents were a little uncomfortable with um, but I, I persisted in that I was very um, into sort of the, the fantastic and uh, the imagination the land of the imagination um, and so I read a lot of Tolkien when I was a kid a lot of Lewis uh, a lot of Terry Brooks uh, and the town that I grew up in is a very small town in the mountains of North Carolina. And I joke, I mean, it looks like Rivendell. Like, it, I, I grew up in Rivendell. I grew up in Hobbiton. Uh, and then I moved to Chicago because, you know, I like Blizzard, right? <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, we have good hot dogs out here, I think, is, is the main thing. But um, it was honestly just a, a love of, of fantasy literature and uh you know, being in a small town, books were kind of like the, the core of my um, my imaginative experience. Uh, you know, I was I was into fantasy role playing games as a kid, but again, with the time and with my parents, D and D was it was off limits. So I had to make up my own stuff. Um, I had to make up my own my own games and my own uh, imaginative realms, and that really um, was just coming up with with new stuff and, and doing my own thing. And that's how I ended up as a writer. Honestly, it was. Uh, you know, I was, I, there's only so much that I was allowed to read. And so I had to come up with my own, my own worlds. Uh, and, and, you know, had a lot of fun with that. Um, I think it, it was good to develop my, my imaginative processes very early on. Uh, it was a, it was one way to get there. So. Mm -hmm. So how old were you about the time where you were like, okay, I, I think I can write for a living. I want to pursue this. I wrote my first book when I was in seventh grade. Um, 
and it was called Elf Wars. Uh, there were neither elves nor a war in it, um, <laughs> but you know, I was still figuring things out. Um, yeah, I, I I started writing like as a thing that I enjoyed in second grade, and uh, wrote a lot um, all through junior high and high school, uh, and in college uh, I was a, I was an English major, um, but the the creative writing department where I went to school um, looked askance at fantasy related stuff, kind of in a writer a lot all through my twenties, but didn't do much actual writing. Um, I, uh, my first writing credits were actually um, in the role-playing game world. I, I had uh, contracts starting in college with companies like um, White Wolf Game Studios and Atlas Games and stuff. Um, and then I got busy with life and just stopped writing completely for 10 years, honestly. Uh, and I turned 30 and woke up and was like, I'm meant to be a writer. Like, I'm not old yet. Today's my 50th birthday. But, uh, you know, I, I, I really meant to be serious about this and um, got serious about it at that stage. I went out and I bought, back then, this was you know, early 2000s, the way to get into publishing was to make a name for yourself in short stories. Um, and so I went out and bought all of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov, Analog, Fantasy Magazine, all the things that I could find, read, you know, a bunch of them for a couple of months and then began writing and submitting short stories um, and getting rejections, <laughs> you know, tons and tons of rejections. But, um, you know, persisted and, and eventually uh, started writing things that were that were interesting. Um, started writing the short stories that served as the groundwork for uh, the Veridon novels, uh, Heart of Veridon and Ted of Veridon. Um, and those started to sell uh, primarily to Interzone magazine, which is a British publisher. There's actually kind of a running joke. We talked about earlier um, Pagan Knight being a very British novel. Um, all of my original short stories sold to Interzone. Uh, when I sold my first novel, it was to Solaris, which at the time was a branch of Black Library, which is the publishing arm of Games Workshop. They do 40K, Warhammer 40K. Um, and uh, my first three novels, uh, two of them came from Solaris. One was from Pyre, uh, which at the time was known for importing uh, novels that had <clears throat> that had sold in in the UK but had not found over uh, Joe Abercrombie you might have heard of him yeah. um, and other other folks um, and then my next three novels the, uh, the Pagan Knight Iron Hound went to Titan which is based in London so for my first six novels I was you know a famous British author but I was American <laughs> um, so yeah it's uh, that's sort of the origin of, of my, my fantasy world. Well, this is the thing, like the world is so big and so, so many people are in it that you could be, like you said, like, I'm sure that quote unquote, like a, a famous British author and be unknown in, in the United States. Like you could, you can have a fan base in China or India or Russia and like be huge and like totally be unknown in, in America. And that's, that's what's crazy. Sometimes as America, we don't, think like that because we were kind of self-centered at least i am and so like you can really have a huge following elsewhere and like nobody knows you in america like you could go to a convention and like just walk around and be like oh that's nobody but you could be like brandon sanderson of russia or whatever you know what i mean yeah well what's what's great about being a fantasy writer in general is that um the the theme is very narrow <laughs> like in my regular life absolutely nobody knows who i am but i can go to a convention and be moderately famous right um and then walk out the door and again complete anonymity even really famous fantasy writers i mean maybe the brandon and, and george martins of the world don't don't experience this but like peter brett and and um, brent weeks i'm sure they, they in their regular life nobody knows who they are and uh it's it's almost comforting <laughs> to be able to to draw that veil of, of anonymity um you know when you when you want it um so yeah, and, and like you say, it's very easy to be very famous in one place, but have absolutely nobody know who you are outside of that. Um, you know, even between fantasy and science fiction, or right. uh, epic fantasy and and young adult fantasy. I mean, there, you know, there there really is a very um, people like what they like, and outside of that, 
they may have no idea who you are. Right. No, it's interesting. Um, I met you at Dragon Steel um, a couple weeks ago, and my, my son and I were, were there together, and we were across the street, and somebody saw our, our you know, the lanyards, the badges, and they were like, oh, you're a convention. Who are you, you know, what are you here for? And my son was like, you know, that's, his name's Lachlan, a very British name. <laughs> he was like, oh, we're, we're seeing Brandon Sanderson. Um, it's, he's been on a convention. And that person who is from Utah, lives in Utah, was like, well, I don't, who's that? So like, even even as big as we think Brandon Sanderson is, like, he's not known everywhere, like even people in his own state. So like, yeah, you can totally have that anonymity and be able to, to be a normal person, which is awesome because you can, you can be famous, be wealthy, do whatever, and have that anonymity where you can go to lunch and not be bothered by everybody. You know, you might see one or two people occasionally, but like, it's not that, you know, it's not like the rock or Tom Cruise or somebody that's going to bombard you. So you can have kind of a private life as a, as a writer. Right. Yeah. The disadvantage to that is because um, fantasy writers especially are so widely spread across the country. Um, it's kind of an isolating industry, right? I mean, my wife and I are both self-employed. Uh, there, there are other writers in the Chicagoland area, but not a lot of us. And even like we see each other maybe once a year, you know, kind of stuff. Uh, it's very easy to, to kind of be operating inside of a bubble and not know um, what kind of impact you're having. Call it a kind of a lonely business because, you know, books come out and you have no idea how they're doing. Uh, the way that reporting goes is just so slow. Uh, you, you know, a book comes out and, you know, you don't know if it's gotten any kind of impact potentially for 18 months, the way that, that some reporting works. Um, so that, that can be kind of tough. Um, the, the other thing about it is, um, I forgot what I was going to say, it was something to do with, I'm 50 years old and I'm, I'm losing my memory. <laughs> um, it has something to do with, you know, the, the way that um, in the industry, you don't really, uh, not only just like the reporting, but also, um, that, that books are coming out. Like my first book, Heart of Veridon, had a follow-up, Dead of Veridon. And I have people come to me at conventions and be like, hey, you know, I loved Heart of Veridon. Are you ever going to work in that world again? And I'm like, I had a book come out the next year from the same publisher, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they had no idea. <laughs> like, it would be kind of cool if they had known that. Um, but yeah, it's, it can be tough. Now you're traditionally published and I interview both indie authors and traditionally published authors. Um, go, can you let us know about the struggle that it took to, to get your, your first book out there and um, some of the joys of, of having that out there? Sure. Um, like I said, back when I started the, the traditional path with short stories, uh, develop a name for yourself, find an agent, and then sell your first novel. Um, I kind of followed that path, but also kind of not. Um, the, the other important thing about this industry is networking uh, to a degree that, um, you know, people don't necessarily realize, uh, or maybe they do and they think it's a terrible thing. But um, like I met my agent, Joshua Bilmes, who's the same agent as, as Brandon Sanderson uh, at a convention called World Fantasy Con in Madison and Madison, Wisconsin, because <clears throat> World Fantasy moves around every year. And it's, it's a very, uh, professional dense convention like it's only I want to say 500 people but it's 75 to 80 percent pros like editors agents authors um, and it's almost sort of a relaxing convention but it's it's a networking convention so it and it moves around every year so it was in Madison one year which is a couple hours from here about an hour and a half wasn't it uh, in so uh, up, Louisiana this last year it was in New Orleans last year yeah and Orleans, next yeah. year it's in Kansas City um, yeah. And uh, so I, I went uh, kind of as an aspiring author. I, I had sold a couple of short stories, um, but not very many. And publishers hold room parties in the hotel. Um, and so I was at Tor's room party. Um, and uh, this was before Elantris had come out, but Brandon had signed. And uh, he was there with Joshua. Um, that's the first time I met him. It was adorable. Um, but he, uh, I, I met Joshua at that party uh, and we just sort of very randomly sort of ended up talking to each other and uh, I described 
you know, the short stories that I had sold and the markets I had sold to and my aspirations. And he asked to see my, um, my first novel, uh, which was a young adult thing uh, called The Kingdom of Doors and Rooms. And um, I sent it to him, uh, but between sending him to, that to him uh, and him actually responding to it, it was about six months. And in that time, I sold, I think, five or six short stories all in the Baradon world. He replied to it with this very positive stuff. Uh, and I said, I, I, and then he called me <laughs> out of the blue, uh, like the day after I got the letter from him. And uh, he, he said, you know, would you, would you, do you have any kind of ideas on, on how to develop it? And I said, well, I, I'm not really sure I want to do young adult novels, actually. Um, you know, I kind of do that on a lark. And uh, I've got all these, these short stories that are selling really well. I might do a novel in that world. And he said, well, when you, when you do that, let me know and, and send it on. Um, the thing that aspiring writers will absolutely hate me for is that I ended up selling that story on spec, um, just on pitch, um, because Solaris had an open, uh, open submission period and all they wanted to see was three chapters and an outline. And that's fortunately all I had. Um, <laughs> and uh, I sent it to him and they bought the book on that. Hey, I have an offer. Would you be, would you be willing to be my agent? Uh, and he said, yes. So uh, that's the... That was the positive of traditional publishing. The negative, uh, I mentioned that Solaris at the time was owned by Black Library. Um, the book was supposed to come out in August of 2009, I think. And in March, Black Library put Solaris, the imprint, up for sale. And it almost tanked my, my career because oh, no. um, they, um, for legal reasons or for, I'm not really sure the entire entire deal, but they did no promotion for anything for that catalog here. Um, they did not send out review copies. They did not um, do any advertising, any marketing. Uh, and we tried to move the book from the imprint. Um, and they said, yeah, sure, go ahead and see if you can get any offers. And we got two, <laughs> uh, both of which were better than, than, our, than the offer that we had from Solaris. So my advice is write the book first and then try to sell it. But um, we got two offers uh, from, Black, from Angry Robot and from Pyre. Uh, and then they said, you know what, legally we can't, we can't release the book um, because it's part, of, it's part of the imprint now. Um, and so the book came out and it didn't sell, it didn't sell well. Let's, let's be polite about it. It didn't completely tank, but it didn't do great. Um, and uh, they went on and sold the imprint to Rebellion, uh, who then bought a second Veridon book. Um, and Pyre Publishing, who had made an offer on Heart of Veridon after the fact, uh, the editor there, a guy named Lou Anders, said, do you have anything else? Um, and you always say yes when they ask you that. Uh, and good, so good I, advice right there. Yeah, always say yes. Doesn't matter if you do. You'll <laughs> write something. Um, and I... I sent him a pitch letter, which was just a paragraph of just this sort of nebulous idea that I had. Uh, and he bought, he bought the book based on that, uh, and that became The Horns of Ruin. And so those three books are very similar. Um, and after those three, I kind of went in a different direction, more epic fantasy, and that sort of developed Pagan Knight uh, and Iron Hound in that series. But uh, yeah, that's sort of been my career since then, so. No, that's amazing like to see the ups and downs of people's career um what kind of kept you motivated to keep going after after all that i mean that's that's that could be discouraging for some people and it might have been for you but like what what motivated you to keep going yeah it was um i i'm a determined man there's no other way to say it like i i'm the kind of guy who um go ahead and kick me down i'm gonna stand up and uh, that comes through in my writing, that comes through in my characters. Um, I'm just not the kind of guy who takes no for an answer. I'm going to keep at it. Um, and so, you know, that's, it, it's a background thing. Like I, <clears throat> you know, I do suffer from a certain amount of depression, but the way that I overcome that is, is just by being a very determined individual. Um, I've always been a hard work guy. Um, my family is, 
a long-standing bunch of entrepreneurs. Uh, we came over for the gold rush kind of guys. Oh, nice. Um, so DNA in you. Say again? It's kind of built into your DNA. Yeah, yeah. It's in the blood. It's in the culture. Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of kind of the people the acres are. So, uh, yeah, it's go ahead and knock me down. But uh, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and you know, you, you shared two great bits of wisdom. The, the first one, always say yes. And then two, like, don't get, I mean, if you get kicked down, get up and push through it and fulfill your dreams. Uh, chase your, chase your goals. Um, I wouldn't say always say yes, because um, (laughs) there is a certain amount of necessary life balance. Uh, You know, when I, um, I write full time now, but that is largely because um, my wife makes the majority of our money. Um, After, um, after the Veridon fiasco, uh, I was writing a book a year, and I was working about 70 hours a week, I worked in kind of a missions company. And, you know, we're very, uh, when you get, when you get a corporation that is mission focused, uh, it is very easy to sacrifice yourself for the good of the company. Um, and uh, I really wanted to step back from that. Uh, I was in a miserable place. I, I was uh, working too much and writing too much and not, um, not fulfilling family obligations and things that I really should have been doing. And that is a very easy thing to do as an aspiring writer because you have this idea of a dream of, a, of acquiring success. And when you're a, a hard worker kind of guy, it's very easy to uh, begin ruining your health and your, your, your relationships and stuff. So aspiring writers, I, I encourage you to work hard, um, but I also encourage you to relax hard as well um, and see to those relationships and, and things that are gonna sustain you through the difficult times. Um, Pagan Knight is is uh, dedicated to my wife because she stuck through me through some difficult stuff. There's no question, uh, and the fact that we uh, stayed together and continue to to function. I'm like we're we're you know we are a team, but uh, it's it, it takes both members of the team to, to function. So uh, they say every every great man has a woman behind him. I have. Uh, the most amazing wife in the world. And I, I will fight anyone who disagrees with that. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and that, that's good to have a support system like that in order to to help you out and to, to lift you up if you can't lift yourself up. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you talked about your, your full-time writer now. Um, what are some of your habits and, and what's like a typical day for Tim Akers? Um, so this is the part that people aren't going to love me so much about, but I, I have a philosophy of not having an alarm clock. Um, and my, like I said, my wife and I are both um, self-employed. We don't have kids. Uh, so we have no obligations outside of the house other than like meetings and, and things like that. So we get up when our bodies wake up, which uh, typically is around eight o'clock um, when most of the world is already functioning and moving and, you know, people are driving around and stuff. Um, we both are at our desks probably by nine. Um, and then I work an eight hour day. Like I, I work whenever I can. Um, but at the same time, like I take an afternoon nap most days because that really is very good for you creatively. I work from, I work two or three hours in the morning. Uh, I make lunch um, and then two or three hours in the afternoon, uh, do stuff around the house. I've got, um, you know, chores and stuff that, that need that need doing. Um, and then I, uh, I, I try to read most afternoons. So um, it really depends on how busy I am and what I'm working on. Like the, the world building stage is, looks a little different because a lot of that is, is, you know, brainstorming and stuff. A lot of that is done in pen and paper um, because this is true for a lot of people, but not everybody, but um, neurologically, your brain fires differently when you are actively, like physically involved in the process of, of whatever you're doing. And so I do a lot of my brainstorming uh, by hand. When I'm on deadline, like right now, I've got uh, a book due at the middle of March. I've got 40,000 words for a game company due at the middle of March. I've got 10,000 words of short stories due at some point, um, you know, 
that's a softer deadline, but I don't get paid till it happens. Um, so right now, like I'm, I'm working easily six, eight hours a day on just writing. And I write when I, like when I can. Um, one of the, the problems that people run into, new writers especially, is this idea that writing is this fragile, muse-based, you know, I must be in the mood and I must be in the right place kind of thing. Mm, nah, it's a, it's a craft. Like it's, it's a very blue collar, sit down uh, and get, at, get at, the, at the task, even when, you know, you're not quite in the mood or if it doesn't feel like it's right. You would be shocked. People cannot tell, you know, when it doesn't feel right and when it does, at the end of the day, it still looks pretty much the same. And revision is honestly more important than drafting anyway. Like that first draft is just kind of messy, you know, get it, get it on the page so that you can fix it later uh, kind of writing. So, so you, you mentioned brainstorming um, earlier. Um, when you when you go to sit down and brainstorm, uh, do you work from a completely fresh idea or do you have like a notebook that you've kind of kept ideas you know, throughout your life? Like what, what, what are you looking for when you, when you get an idea to explore? Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, I'm a cosmology guy, right? I'm, a um, I, the Pagan Knights series. I, I often say that that is, um, what Brandon does with magic. I do with religion in that system. Um, I always work from the big picture down, um, and just kind of, look at the, I create whatever the, the truth is, you know, the cosmology. And then I look at cultures that would grow out of that. And then I try to evolve them over time. And then I look at how those institutions that are, are created would uh, interact. And then I start looking for where the story points are. And then I begin working on character. Um, so I, I do work sort of the outside in. Uh, that said, character is so important that once I've got all that done, I step back and then develop characters within that world. And I, like in, the characters end up interviewing for the story process, like the series that I'm working on now, uh, which is, it's formerly called Bladecaster. Um, and it, uh, I, I think I've written the first chapter of maybe five or six different characters. And, you know, maybe three of them will make the cut at the end of the day, um, which, which is tough because you write stuff that you really like, uh, but you're like, is this hell? Um, and it usually isn't. Usually you, you want to get along and, and write something a little more, I don't know, direct. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's my general process. Um, I, I do have, this is going to sound terrifying, but I have 20 books planned out. Like I have essentially my life plan of, oh, nice. I want to write these five books. I want to write these two other books. I want to write these books. Um, and some of them are related. Some of them aren't. I have uh, a murder mystery series that I'm working on with my wife that I want to kind of develop that is unlike anything else that I do. Uh, I have Nightwatch stuff. I have Wraithbound, which is coming out in April. I've got five books planned in that series. Bladecaster is related to that. I've got, you know, I've got a lot of stuff that I, I have in place. Um, and most of it comes from, from world building. Um, so I have a document. <laughs> oh, nice. So as you're sitting down to write, um, you know, you have your, your document and stuff and you, you brainstorm from the outside in, basically. Um, do you, do you then like outline it? Do you just set up guideposts and you kind of write towards those guideposts in the story? Like, how do you, how do you set up your story? Um, I, I am an outliner. Um, but I use the outlining process, um, to create signposts in, in the plot. And then I discover my right, my way between them. And then usually at the end of the thing, uh, I have to revise it to make it look like the way that it ended up is what I intended to do all along. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm some combination of outline and, and, and discovery writer. Um, I do follow Sanderson's bracketing method where I sit down and I ask, you know, what are the plot questions here? And how am I gonna answer them in interesting ways? Um, that first book that I wrote, Kingdom of Doors and Rooms, uh, when Joshua read it and replied to it, uh, he said, this is great. You've got some great world building. You've got no plot. Uh, <laughs> and he, uh, he suggested a book called Writing to Sell, which he suggests to a lot of writers. 
uh, and that was the first time, like I had a degree in creative writing, but I did not know how to plot a novel. Um, and that's one of those things that I think writers learn when they should. Um, at the, I'm still, I still live in the area of, of the college that I went to. And there is a writing group, a student writing group at the college. And I kind of volunteer with them. Um, and I, like my main goal in doing that is providing the information that I wish I had when I started, which is largely business stuff and plotting. Like, you know, young writers don't know how to plot and they right. should. Uh, so you can come out of college with a lot of knowledge, but very little knowledge. <laughs> well, uh, part of, you know, part of writing is selling your books and knowing the business side of it. And the business side is selling books that people want to read. So being able to plot and being able to understand what, what fans are looking for is a huge part if you want to sell your books. So that's good yeah. that you, you go and um, volunteer and help those aspiring art, artists, like being able to give back and, and do that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Lifting people up is a, a sort of part of my life goal. Oh, that's amazing. Now you, you said uh, like the, the Hallowed War, um, Hallowed War, not Hallowed, uh, Hallowed War, uh, was published by Titan. Um, Nightwatch that just came out last year uh, was picked up by Bain. And from what I understand, uh, Wraithbound, which is coming out in April, is picked up by Bain. Um, mm -hmm. As as an author, you know, you you, you think, well, you know, with, with me, just say, just me. Um, I always dream that like, all right, my book's going to be by, by Tor or Da or Delray or, you know, you and all. But like, you know, you have multiple publishers. How, how did that relationship start to and move it to Bain, how did that go about? Um, in a very traditional way, uh, on pitch. Um, the, um, the agenting process, well, okay, so let's, let's go back a little bit. Um, the Pagan Night series, I wrote that book and then uh, sent it to a bunch of places, uh, collected a bunch of rejection letters and eventually sold to Titan. But the Titan sale was on the condition of a complete rewrite. Um, which, you know, that's fine. I, that, that's part of the learning process. Um, and then once I finished that series, uh, Joshua was like, all right, what's next? What's, what, what are your ideas? And I sent him a pitch document of maybe eight ideas that I had across a variety of uh, genres and stuff. Um, and he and I agreed uh, that my next project should be Wraithbound, um, which was a book that I had written the first draft of while we were negotiating the contract for Pagan Night. I wrote book one in like 90 days, which is unusual for me. Um, but it was, a, it was an idea that I was very passionate about. But the first draft was terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> so first drafts uh, are, to be fair. Uh, the, the book that comes in, that's coming out doesn't resemble the first draft at all in any way different characters everything um wow. the only the only core concept like the original idea for Wraithbound, um pagan knight has a bunch of point of view characters and is a broad you know very large um sweeping kind of narrative and the original draft of pagan knight there was actually there were actually two other uh povs that got cut out of the final draft um so anyway uh when i finished that project i was like i'm never writing that many characters in a book again because it it drove me nuts and i said my next book i'm gonna write one character and but he needs someone to talk to so i'm gonna have uh, a ghost bound to his soul so that he can talk to the ghost and that's it like that's that's the whole story so that's the origin of Wraithbound. um though it, it it's developed beyond that but anyway um so uh i developed this pitch thing. We said, all right, Wraith Bound's what we're going to do. And I started working on it. And then the idea for Night Watch occurred to me. It was one of those very rare, woke up in the middle of the night um, and the whole book was just in my head, like almost entirely. And I sat down and wrote it in 10 weeks. Um, and it usually takes me about eight months to write a book. Uh, and I sent it to Joshua and was like, this is not what we discussed. <laughs> but this is what I've written. Uh, and he, you know, he was expecting one thing and got something else. And Nightwatch is very different from everything else that I've written. It's very light, very um, 
kind of jokey. The main character is not super competent. Like a lot of my writing is is competency writing, um, and uh, he's he's just a guy who, who dreams of being a hero and is trying to become the hero that he can become. Um, and so uh, it went out to to went out on submission, went out to different publishers, um, and got rejected by most of them. But Bain picked it up. Um, so that's how that relationship started. Um, they they liked Night Watch and were interested in it, and uh, they bought two books, Night Watch and Valhellions, both of which are out. And then they bought Right of First Refusal on my next novel, which was Wraithbound, because I went like as soon as I was done with Night Watch, I sat down and finished Wraithbound, um, and then revised it after I finished Valhellions, which is the second Night Watch book. Uh, and then sent it out on submission and again collected a bunch of rejections um, but uh, Bain picked it up um, and uh, they have also purchased the third night watch book so I I don't know Bain is very loyal to its writers um, and they like what they like uh, and they they like they love Wraithbound. They've, they've been very happy with it. I don't like trying to write to market. Uh, and there are ways in which a portion of the market has moved away from the kind of things that I want to write. Um, there's a lot more young adult influence and, and romance influence and fantasy these days, um, which is one of the things that I liked about Dragonsteel. It was good to see that traditional epic fantasy still has a market right. because it's not always that easy to believe that when you see what's coming out of New York sometimes. Right. Just an opinion I have. <laughs> no, and, and Bain, and this is good for Bain because like you said, like they're very loyal to their writers and they like what they like. And as a fan, you know what Bain is going to produce. Like, you know exactly like, they like high action power fantasy and science fiction that, you know, kicks, kicks your butt and like, it's it's so fun, and I, I love being for that. And so, like you said, like some things have moved away. Like Tor has a variety of things that when I was a kid, like if you picked up a Tor book, you knew exactly it was epic fantasy, and you knew what you were getting. Now it's not like that, and um, you know it's kind of changed. And you know, for good or bad, I don't know. It's just, but as as a as a fan, when I when I go to a bookstore and I I see okay, there's there's the Tor Mountain Stars or whatever, I know exactly what I'm getting. Yeah, and. Like for we mentioned Tor, I, Tor has some of my favorite authors, oh, yeah, but they also, in a lot of cases, do stuff that I don't. So I no longer follow Tor as a brand. I follow individual authors that happen to be Tor authors. Um, same with Da, like uh, Christopher Rocchio, one of my favorite uh, authors. Um, you know, it's 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 difficult to to really call necessarily. Um, all DAW or all tour, or all orbit, you know, you're not necessarily going to like everything. Um, but with Bain, you generally like they, they know their readership and they produce what their readers are going to like. Um, and they, they do a really good job with, with military science fiction, which I read a lot of when I was a kid. Um, but I'm really more of a fantasy guy and they really are making a push into fantasy. I mean, they've always had a lot of good fantasy authors, but they're, they're being a little bit more front of, front of mind about it than I think they've been in the past. They just picked up uh, Howard Andrew Jones uh, and, and a lot of other guys and, you know, Larry Korea, uh, the, that, was it Forbidden, Forgotten Warrior? I, I've got the books. I just can't remember the name of the Sons of the Black Blade. Uh, that series uh, is mm -hmm. one of my, one of my favorite. Um, I, I have to joke though, because like, because it's Larry, uh, it's high epic fantasy and stuff, but now guns have arrived. Oh, come on. Yeah. I'm here for swords, man. I'm a swords guy, you know, but. Well, and, and, and I'm going to, like, this is your podcast, but I'm going to say for anybody who likes epic fantasy and hasn't read Larry Korea's um, epic fantasy, The Son of the Black Sword, like, you got to check that out. Like, it's amazing. Oh, no, look, I, I will, here, I'm going to give you a list of, of, let's say, five people that you should read if you like epic fantasy that a lot of people don't necessarily know. Um, J.T. Greathouse, uh, he has a book called um, Hand of the Sun King. Book two is Garden of Empire. Book three is coming out next year, I think. It's sold in the UK. 
Uh, it did not get much distribution in the U.S. I love that book. I love that series. I think that um, you know it it hasn't gotten the attention in the U.S. that it should get. Um, Daniel Abraham, uh, the um, Long Price Quartet, and also the Dragon and the Coin Quintology, which we call it, yeah the five book series. Uh, those are excellent, excellent books. Um, those are the first two that come off the top of my head. So those, you know, this is my podcast, but go read those two books. <laughs> They're really good. And, and you mentioned Christopher Rocchio, the Sun Eater series. Is, oh, yeah. Uh, Christopher Rocchio, I just interviewed him. His podcast uh, episode came out last Friday. Um, so if you haven't watched that, like, that's, he, he gives great advice on that. And he was kind of unique because he, he sold the DAW, but worked for Bain. So he kind of had like a different dynamic with that. So Anyway, back to you. <laughs> who, who have been some of your influences in your career? Um, well, let's see. I started off in, I read a lot of Terry Brooks when I was a kid. Uh, a lot of Dennis L. McKiernan, um, who wrote essentially just rip off Lord of the Rings stuff, Tolkien, obviously. Um, and Fred Saberhagen and Keith Lommer were two of the, the big ones for me. Um, the formative event that changed the way that I both write and read fiction uh, was William Gibson. Um, when I was a kid, I read Neuromancer in high school. And I do not reread books very often, um, but I have reread Neuromancer probably a dozen times. Um, just the way that he approached language and story. There's a lot of uh, noir influence in that book that people don't necessarily pick up on. Um, but yeah. Gibson was a big, big, big thing for me. Tim Powers. And then um, I kind of got into the new weird thing. China Mieville uh, was, was a big influence um, when I was in my 30s, probably. Uh, ever since then, I've just been kind of focused on, on finding my own voice. Um, I really had a problem when I first started. Uh, you could tell that I loved William Gibson, you know. Uh, and it took, it took a long time to kind of bleed that out of my system so that, you know, I was writing in my own style and my own, my own function. Uh, if you're trying as a writer to write like somebody else, you're ultimately going to be disappointed or be disappointing, to be honest, mm -hmm. because people are going to read you and think, oh, this guy likes Terry Pratchett. That's cool, but I'd rather be reading Terry Pratchett, you know? Right. Um, so you really kind of have to find a way to, to, to develop your own, your own style and the confidence to be like, this is, this is Tim Akers, um, which I have in spades. Um, so yeah, that's, th those are like the big names in my past. Uh, PG Wodehouse has a lot of influence on Nightwatch. If you can see this bookcase, I could have trouble figuring out where my finger is relative this bookcase here. Um, that is my father's bookcase. Uh, it contains every P.G. Wodehouse book that has ever been printed. Uh, Wodehouse was a big comedy writer, uh, British comedy writer. And when other people's dads were reading them, I don't even know, whatever it is that people's dads read them, uh, he was reading me P.G. Wodehouse. So it's the Jeeves and Wooster thing. Oh, nice. um, so yeah, that was a big influence on my, on my humor and my overall uh, outlook on life, uh, kind of a cynical um, British humor so um yeah that's fantastic did you ever get a chance to uh, uh meet william golden not william golden william gibson gibson yeah yeah i was uh very early on the in the internet uh gibson had a blog and there was a discussion board attached to that blog the william gibson board um and i was a an early user of that uh and one of sort of the the founding members of the community that grew out of that. So some of my best friends in the world, uh, but they're spread all over the world. Um, and yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet, meet Mr. Gibson uh, a number of times. Um, never in a professional capacity. Like, you know, I do write very differently than him. I write fantasy and he's not a fantasy guy uh, particularly. Um, so like, I've never talked to him from like, a, here's my writing, here's your writing kind of, kind of <laughs> right. sense. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, we've, we've met. He's a, he's a fun guy. Good. No, I always find it interesting because um, doing this podcast, I reach out and talk to people a lot and stuff. And everybody has been 
for the most part i haven't had any like negative like no like you're an idiot or whatever but like you know like you and everybody else who's an author or an artist that i've interviewed everybody's been so nice and so um willing to to do this that like when i ask people like who are their mentors or who who's somebody that you haven't met that you'd like to and, and stuff and like lots of times i was talking to a guy um I interviewed a guy who's he lives in England and he's all man if I could meet John Gwynn like that would be amazing like John Gwynn and like he literally lived like 45 minutes away from him and I'm like and I reached out to John Gwynn and I like John Gwynn responded and like he he was going through some stuff so he's not able to have an interview now and I might cut this because I don't want that but like um but he was more than like happy to be like hey look we're going through some stuff right now I'm sorry like maybe in the future but and like but here's a guy who's like biggest fan of John Gwynn and he's 45 minutes away. Like you could go, you know, reach out to him. Maybe John would meet him for lunch or something, you know? You can make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. Writers in general crazy. are are very, because the industry is kind of difficult and there's not a lot of guidance going in, we tend to be very friendly and helpful to one another. Um, and so I kind of always assumed that, like I'd be good friends with all the writers that I meet. And so far that's been pretty true um i'm a i'm a go along to get along kind of guy there are writers who are a little more confrontational than than me um i'm uh i i just try to be a friendly dude <laughs> <laughs> no and that's great and it was great talking to you um dragon still too like you were open and friendly and like it didn't i didn't feel intimidated um asking you to be on the podcast which is fantastic because there are some people i'm like kind of hesitant to everybody's been super nice but like Good. some people just come across like don't talk to me, you know, even though you're there to sell books, there, there are some people who like just come across them that way. Again, that, that comes down to like my, my upbringing and my sort of, um, I don't know, just be a nice dude. <laughs> it's so difficult about that, but apparently it's a thing. I don't know. Right. Well, um, you talked about earlier in the, uh, in the podcast, in the episode, um, you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons and RPGs, do you still kind of do that? Oh, yeah, professionally. Um, I, um, Yes, I, I play D and D. Uh, I'm still in the same D and D group that I was in in college. We meet. Well, I mean, since the pandemic, we've been doing it online, but um, once a month. And you know, doing it online has been nice because we've been able to add in people who moved away from the area. Um, but yeah, no, gaming is is a central part of uh, my life. I do a lot of war gaming now, more than I did when I was a kid. Um, I still write for uh, weird games. They do a, a game called Malifaux. Uh, I'm one of the main writers for that. Um, but yeah, that that's always been like there was a time in my life when I thought I was going to be a professional game designer. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that did not work out because uh, that is a difficult business to make a living. at. <laughs> um, and also what I enjoy most about stories, gaming isn't necessarily the best outlet for that. Um, at the game table, uh, the storytelling process is, is great, but from like a company's perspective, it's a little harder to, to direct that, that sort of thing. So, but yeah, no, I, I, I have a, a hierarchy of, uh, storytelling experiences. Like I, I think that movies are great. Um, I think books are better because you have more room to breathe narratively. Um, I think that games are better than books because it's an interactive experience. Both the author and the reader are at the same table and you are collaboratively telling a story together. So when it's working well, uh, I think I think gaming is is absolutely like the, the top storytelling experience. Um, that said, like, if you go to the game with that kind of expectation of like, I'm going to be the super storytelling thing, then it can kind of backfire sometimes. Right. Um, because if there's like one person who doesn't want to like, you know, participate in that, then they're not having fun. So you have an obligation to everybody at the table to, to figure out where they want to be as far as the game is concerned and, and to meet them where they are, as opposed to being like, we're telling stories about, you know, childhood trauma and, you're all going to do that. And they're like, no, I want to be a gnome thief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm here to steal coins, man. No, that's, that's, that's fun that you have the same group since college. Like, that's amazing. Like, that, it's that actually my, a lot of times. it is my wife's group. Um, oh, okay. She uh, 
has been playing since junior high. This is how I knew that I was going to marry this woman because we we met over a game of Shadowrun in college. Uh, and I was like, oh, hi. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, this, this, is, this is definitely in line with my interests. Um, so yeah, we still game together. We play World of Warcraft together. Um, we have raids starting tomorrow night. So uh, that's, it's, it's nice to have um, like your game time be family time as well. No, that's us too. We play, um, we play Pathfinder on Sunday afternoons um, or, or try to, it doesn't happen all the time, but um, that's, that's our family thing on Sunday afternoon. So, uh, and it's, it's great. Like you said, like it's, uh, it's great to be together, to have stories together, creating stories and you create memories. Uh, there's lots of times where my, my young bit or my middle son is, is 12. Um, but they'd be like, Hey dad, remember when we, like, it's always, we did this. It's not like, remember when we did this in the, like my character, yeah. like it becomes a part of him. So it's fun. Yeah. And it's good. Like, I, I think that kind of, to be able to do that in the family dynamic is, is spectacular. I, again, like <clears throat> my parents don't understand fantasy at all. I love my parents to death. Um, but like what I do for a living is, is utterly beyond them. Um, so I'm glad your son and you're able to, to do that with your kids because uh, that is a, a thing that's lacking. Uh, I, I really wish my, my parents more thoroughly understood what I do. Um, right. But yeah, what can you do? <laughs> well, Tim, thank you so much for getting on with me. Go ahead and tell everybody um, how they can get a hold of you. And if you're going to any conventions in 2023, um, go ahead and promote that if you know of any I know. Sure. Um, so let's see. Uh, I am Tim Akers, A-K-E-R-S. I am uh, online at timakers.net, but also on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really the only famous Tim Akers left. Um, there was another Tim Akers. Unfortunately, he passed away last year. Um, so I'm, I'm the living one. <laughs> um, uh, conventions, I will be at LibertyCon in what is that, June in Chattanooga? That's the only convention I have planned right now. I'm probably going to Dragonsteel next year, um, but I have not made any plans to be at any other conventions in a writerly capacity. I will be at Adepticon in Chicago, which is a gaming convention, um, just gaming. Uh, so uh, that's that's really pretty much it. Um, the big thing for me is the release of uh, Wraithbound in April. Uh, Are you going to do it? Tour for that at all? I will do an informal tour, but like the idea of a, a traditional book tour doesn't exist um, for Bain, really. So, um, you know, if I do, it'll mostly be in the Chicagoland area uh, and wherever I happen to be. So, like when I visit my parents in North Carolina, I will be at Barnes and Nobles in North Carolina. When I visit my wife's parents in Colorado, I will be at uh, Barnes and Nobles in Colorado. But that's pretty much it okay well, um that's awesome i hope to see you again uh dragon still or if you go to a, if we meet up at another convention that, that'd be fun so thank you so much for getting on with me i learned a lot from you today oh my pleasure good time thank you for listening to the troy podcast please subscribe like and share with your friends